So Matthew 15, 10 through 20, defilement is from within. Lord, we thank you for your word now. Uh, minister to our hearts as we study together. Help me to make the to be accurate with the text in my teaching and to make the applications that would be uh, appropriate and uh, profitable for us as your people. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, we are in Matthew, and we have worked our way down to Matthew chapter 15. And uh, so we're in that section, chapters 14 through 16, the revelations of the king. The context of Matthew 15 finds Jesus in the last year of his ministry his earthly ministry. And the hostility of the Jewish religious leaders towards Jesus continued to escalate. It builds until the time of the crucifixion. And the reason it's building and their hostility is growing is because they felt threatened by Jesus. You see, Jesus himself claimed to be the Lord And he demonstrated this in a number of ways. He showed himself to be the Lord of the temple when he cleansed it of the money changers early in his ministry. That's a problem if you're running the temple. Who's this guy think he is coming in on our turf and just throwing all these tables around and running everything out of here? Oh, who does he think he is? He just happens to be the Lord of the temple. Uh, The Lord of worship, in effect. He, de- he declared himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. It's a really big thing. Who, who's in charge of the Sabbath here anyway? Well, Yahweh. He, he says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And now as we work our way through Matthew 15, we find that Jesus in effect shows himself to be Lord over what is acceptable worship. <laughs> in terms of what's, what matters as far as kosher uh, versus acceptable worship from the inside. So this lordship issue was the critical issue for the religious leaders, which ultimately led to the reason they crucified him or called for his crucifixion, saying he made himself out to be the son of God. They got that point very clearly. Well, in Matthew 15, a delegation of religious leaders from Jerusalem had come to Jesus, seeking to discredit his ministry over the issue of ceremonial washing which Christ's disciples did not strictly adhere to. Now, contextually, this whole section from Matthew 15, 1 through 20, is really dealing with this legalistic issue of ceremonially washing the hands before eating. Verse 2 and verse 20 are like bookends to this discussion. Uh, So note there, uh, why do your disciples transgress the, tra- the tradition of the elders, of course, the scribes and the Pharisees are asking the question, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. That's the issue. And then Jesus, at the end of our discussion, as we will see this morning, says in Matthew fifteen twenty, these are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. In fact, there was no laws regulating this in the Old Testament. They weren't really going by the word of God here at this point. So the whole issue is about the contrast between the external oral traditions and that of internal heart obedience, which is indicative of true worship. Well, Jesus called out these religious leaders for putting their religious legalistic traditions above Scripture and thus negating the Scripture. And this perversion resulted in them following the doctrines of men 
instead of following the commandments of God in the matter of worship. Jesus called them hypocrites and said their worship was vain, empty, or worthless. Well, when you are the highest religious leaders in the land, the most respected, even essentially revered, with great admiration, and Jesus dares to call your worship bogus, that really stings. I mean, ego has a hard time with that. They challenge Christ's credibility. I mean, either Christ has no credibility or we have no credibility. And this is a throwdown. They're all in. So they challenge Christ's credibility on the basis of tradition. And in turn, Christ called them out as being totally illegitimate. And their worship a farce on the basis of Scripture. They brought tradition and Christ brought Scripture. Now, what do you think? Does tradition trump Scripture? Or does Scripture trump tradition? Well, we know it's all about the Scripture. And that's where Christ went to. We pick the narrative up now at Matthew 15 and verse 10. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand. He now brings the crowd into the discussion. And the reason for that is because the influence of these religious leaders regarding these legalistic traditions was great. It was not only just a little thing amongst themselves, this impacted the whole of society. And so Jesus is wanting to make the point broadly here. Verse 11, and here's his main point. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. The idea of defiles is to make one ceremonially unclean and therefore not able to approach God in worship. It is to make the sacred common or profane, the idea of secular, and therefore unacceptable to God. Now, Jesus was speaking fundamentally. Food by itself is neutral. It doesn't spiritually defile a person. It's just food. It's not what goes into the mouth, food, that defiles a person, but rather what comes out of the mouth, that is, words indicative of a defiled heart. John Phillips says, in one sweeping statement, Jesus denounced the entire structure by which the rabbinical schools, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the religious leaders secured their hold on the multitudes. He labeled their religious rules and regulations, their exegesis, Their spirit-stifling, God-dishonoring, Bible-contradicting, man-enslaving, soul-destroying, ego-building, Satan-serving traditions as worthless. Well, that's a mouthful. That's doing a lot in one statement. In one sweeping statement, he denounced their entire structure. I mean, this is kind of a major deal. In effect, that is what Jesus did. He discredited their entire outward, legalistic, extra-biblical religious structure by undermining their ceremonial washing system, saying it's invalid. It's invalid. You know how often you eat? Too often. No, no. (laughs) We eat all the time. I dare say a majority of you ate before you came to church, right? 
I dare say when you get done with church this morning, you're going to go eat, right? And you're going to eat before you come back to church. And some of you are going to have the audacity to eat after church again tonight. I mean, we just eat all the time. Eating affects our whole life. Now, if you are a Jew and you're tying, whether it's appropriate for you to worship God in, with being kosher and with eating properly with washed hands, this is affecting every area of your life all the time. This is major. So how could Jesus just kind of with one sweeping statement in effect that affects the whole of their life, how could he just throw this all aside? How could he do this? Under the law... And Christ was still under the Mosaic law at this time. He was born under the law, Galatians 4. And he kept the law. He was not a lawbreaker. So Christ was still under the law at this point. And there were dietary restrictions for the Jews. Leviticus 11 said that the Jews could not eat meat from any animal that did, that did not chew the cud or have cloven hooves. They could not eat fish unless it had scales and fins. Detailed instructions were given concerning what was clean and what was unclean in Leviticus chapter 11. Every Jew knew this. Jesus was not refuting that the Mosaic law taught this. Although later, under post-crossed new covenant, all such regulations were removed. We're not under the old covenant. We're now under the new covenant. But they were still under the old covenant at this point. Again, note carefully that the issue here specifically related to eating with unwashed hands, which the law did not specifically address except for certain certain qualified situations related to the priests, etc. And even though the law did forbid Jews from eating certain things, yet those foods in and of themselves were not fundamentally impure. Otherwise, we should not be able to eat them either. But we can. I mean, it's pretty clear. I mean, if you've got to have rules on Friday where you can't, you know, have to eat fish, I mean, there's just something wrong with that. Uh, there's, it's crazy. We're doing the same thing the Jews did. First Timothy chapter 4, every creature of God is good. Amen. And nothing is to be refused. Boy, some really live there, don't they? And nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. We can eat whatever we want. The point is, the issue goes deeper than just the external use of food. It goes to the heart of the matter behind as to why the person does or does not eat. I want you to listen to this commentary. It really says it in a succinct way and in a very good way. Evangelical commentary on the Bible. Real uncleanness lies not in food that passes through the body but in those qualities that dwell in the heart. Ceremonial laws find their justification in relation to moral laws. Otherwise, they lose their significance and become empty rituals. You see, in the Old Testament, the godly did take ceremonial uncleanness very serious. Daniel, as a man of God, refused to defile himself with the king's delicacies in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. The distinction between unclean and clean animals served as a continual reminder to the Jews that they were to be a set-apart holy people. 
Well, Jesus was not throwing all of that aside. Again, Wycliffe Bible Commentary explains. By this statement, Jesus is not abrogating, setting aside, uh, or superimposing something else over it. Jesus was not abrogating the Levitical Code, nor should Mark 7.19 be so interpreted. An abrogation not announced till after Pentecost, but was stating the principle that moral defilement is spiritual, not physical. Food is amoral. Sin lies in the heart of the man who disobeys God and perverts its use. Even the defilement arising to a Jew from eating meat Levitically unclean was not caused by the food itself, but by the rebellious heart that acted in disobedience to God. Those distinctions are very important. This is the key point Jesus is driving home. Before God, the ultimate issue is about the heart, not merely the externals. The Jewish leaders had made it all about the externals to the point that these extra-biblical traditions trumped the Scripture itself. This is the mark of mere form religion, the mark of false religion. Verse 11, where Jesus says, not what goes into the mouth defiles, but rather what comes out of it, in effect is the answer to the question in verse 2 where the scribes and the Pharisees asked Christ about why his disciples did not wash according to the tradition of the elders. And verse 11 essentially says those traditions are in error and invalid. And that's why they don't follow those ridiculous traditions. Their whole premise was wrong in terms of what defiles a person. Verse 12, Then his disciples came and said to him, do you know, you never want to come to the Lord with that. <laughs> do you know? Are you kidding? He could have said, who do you guys think I am? <laughs> do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Now we know, one of the, the 11th commandment is thou shalt never offend, right? Uh, no. Uh, Verses 12 through 14 really reflect what took place privately now after Jesus and his disciples had withdrew from the crowd and entered to a house as noted in Mark 7, 17. And it's almost humorous. It's almost like the disciples are feeling kind of bad about Jesus being so hard on these Pharisees. After all, you understand these were V. IPs from Jerusalem, right? That's what it said up earlier in the chapter. These were scribes and Pharisees, a delegation from Jerusalem. These are important people. And, and Jesus, I, I, I think you might have offended him a little bit. Dignitaries like this should have some respect, right? You know, as God's people, we always want to be gracious. We do. But sometimes people can seek to be so gracious that they fail to take a strong stand on truth. And sometimes being overly gracious is really not like Jesus because it compromises. 
I know it's radical for our culture today to ever think in these terms. Sometimes we can be more concerned about offending people. And again, I don't want to purposely ever offend people. I don't want my flesh to be the cause of the offense. But sometimes we can be more concerned about offending people than we are concerned about compromise that offends God. And that's a trap. And there's always pressure. Yes, we do always want to be gracious. We don't want to be flesh ugly. We want to be gracious, but not at the expense of the truth. And that sometimes means that in being clear and uncompromising, we're going to be blunt and in a way that is taken as offensive. It's just unavoidable. No matter how gracious you are, they're not going to like it. Galatians 1.10, Paul says, If I am now trying to win the favor of people or God, or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a slave of Christ. You really got to say, who am I going to serve here? You, you can't please everybody. You can't please God and people at the same time. Often you're going to be in that situation. 1 Thessalonians 2.4, as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men. We don't care what people say. I mean, this is not a matter of opinions. I'm here declaring on the authority of God, his message. It's not my message. It's from him. And I'm not here to please anybody. Just here to give his message. Not as pleasing men, but God. That's who we want to please. God who tests our hearts. Ed Glasscock says, in contemporary culture where political correctness is considered a sign of spiritual maturity, Jesus would certainly seem unspiritual. Jesus wished his followers to see that the offense against God for laying aside his truth for the sake of tradition was far more serious than an offense against religionists who were misleading people. It was evidently clear that the Pharisees were offended. I mean, Jesus just flat out called them hypocrites. That's probably offensive. That's seen in verse 7. And then he followed up by saying their worship was vain because they followed man-centered teaching. And by the time Jesus gets done, as we will see in the verses following, it gets even worse. The word offended, Greek uh, skandalizo, means to be a stumbling block or cause to fall, cause to sin. The idea is that the Pharisees were having a hard time with Jesus rebuking them for being man followers instead of God followers, for revering their traditions above the word of God, for not being true worshipers. And this really troubled them. When you're the key spiritual leaders in the whole country, that is a problem. When somebody says, you know, your, your worship, it's just vain. Everything you're about is, is not God-centered. It's off. No wonder they were really troubled. Ed Glasscock again says, hypocrisy is always offended by the truth. And it is. Verse 13, Jesus continues, But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. The language here just got stronger. You know what Jesus is saying here? He's flat out saying that these esteemed religious leaders have no relationship with God and are not saved. They are not of God. It's not like, well, 
these are really pretty good people. We just need a little adjustment, a little correction. Oh, no, no, no. They're not even with God. They're not even God's plants. They're not even God's people. We saw in Matthew 13 in the parable of the wheat and the tares, that is, it is the devil who sows the sons of the wicked one. And conversely, it is God who plants the children of God. The people of God in the Old Testament are often pictured as a plant which has been planted by God. Those not planted by the Heavenly Father are going to be uprooted, which means they're going to be destroyed. They are like weeds that will be extracted from God's garden. These plants were to be rooted up, not just cut down, dug out by the, the roots. They were to be cast from the very program of the Heavenly Father. Such is the fate of those who replace God's truth and true worship with legalistic religion. Jesus was very hard on these people. You know, Jesus was harder on the Pharisees and the scribes than anybody else. You say, boy, he really went after those prostitutes. No, he didn't. Yeah, they need the Lord too. But they were much more open than these hypocritical religious leaders. Verse 14, Jesus says, let let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Now, there are certain situations where we just need to leave people alone. Especially religious leaders entrenched in false doctrine and leading people astray. Paul in 2 Timothy 3.5 says we should turn away from hypocritical religious people who have a form of godliness, but deny the life-changing power of it in their practice. Jesus didn't say, try to engage them. Uh, You know, uh, they too need help. Uh, Try to engage them a little bit more. Be patient with them. Uh, Try to seek, are you ready for this line? I love this line. Let's seek common ground. No! He simply said, let them alone. As noted previously, there is a time when we are not to cast our pearls before swine. Just walk away. Just leave them alone. Jesus then described these religious leaders as blind leaders of the blind. What a pathetic condition. To be spiritually blind is to not see spiritual truth. And yet here they were leading, leading others. They're the blind leading other blind people. And what's the result? Well, both will fall into the ditch. That is, ultimately, the ditch represents hell. They're leading people to hell. Ironically, Paul says in Romans 2.19 that the religious Jews were confident that they were, quote, a guide To the blind. It's amazing how blind guides can be so confident. I mean, these people are so confident, they're taking on the Lord Himself. No problem taking you on. Blind guides can be so outwardly confident, and yet at the same time be so totally blind as to not have any idea what they're talking about, and yet they come off like they do. Amazingly, these blind leaders often get a following. And of course, those following them are also blind, also deceived. 
Bruce Scott tells this story. It was a scam that worked for months. In 1849, William Thompson prowled the streets of New York City looking for people to swindle. His approach was simple and yet effective. Appearing to be a gentleman, sophisticated, and highbrow, Thompson would approach a complete stranger and strike up a polite conversation. After a few moments, he would ask his target, have you confidence in me to trust me with your watch until tomorrow? Surprisingly, many people obliged, placing their confidence in Thompson's honesty. They handed over their expensive timepieces, never to see them again. Thompson continued this ruse, unabated, until one day a former victim recognized him and had him arrested. The New York Herald dubbed him as the confidence man. The name stuck and was applied to any trickster who followed Thompson's disreputable example. Later, the term was shortened to con man. Con man. That's a con man. Blind religious leaders are con men. And they're good at it. They're so sincere. They come off credible. Their hypocrisy blinds them. They were blind to their own sinfulness and also to God's truth. They didn't see spiritual reality for what it was. And yet they very confidently claimed to be the spiritual leaders of God's people. As they say, false teachers are always confident. They don't have an air of humility in their bones anywhere. These scribes and Pharisees claim to be the experts... In the law, knowing the word of God better than anyone else. And they did know the word. You know, where is the Christ to be born? Matthew chapter 2. They knew exactly where it said the, the Christ was to be born. And they, well, we'll get back to you on that. We've got to study. No, they knew. They were experts in the law. But Jesus called them blind guides of the blind. Few things could have been more insulting than this description, to these who prided themselves on their religious knowledge. Thomas Constable says, they failed to comprehend the real meaning of the scriptures. They took so much pride in understanding. A tragic end awaits the blind guides as well as whom they guide. The critics' rejection of Jesus was only one indication of their spiritual blindness. Well, once again, we see the clash between Jesus and the religious leaders was really over the issue of authority. They claim to be the authentic, the genuine interpreters of the law, but Jesus, in authoritative tones, in no uncertain terms, assigned that role singularly to himself as Lord of the law. This conflict over religious authority, again, would ultimately lead to the religious leader seeking to destroy Jesus, which culminated in the cross. Verse 15, then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. The sense of a parable here is different, has a different nuance than what we saw in Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, the parables were of such a nature as to conceal the truth from the multitudes. But here in verse 10, Jesus called on the multitude to hear and understand. The idea of a parable refers to a short, pithy statement, which Peter found to be obscure and unclear. 
What Jesus was trying to say was still unclear in the mind of Peter, and evidently he spoke for all the disciples, as noted in the word us. Years later, Peter was still grappling with this issue, as seen in, in Acts chapter 10, and there was a dispensational change after the cross. But uh, note, Peter said, Not so, Lord, I have never eaten anything common or unclean. <laughs> it's like you would have a, a little resistance to uh, you know, inspired revelation here. It's like, oh, I've never done this in my entire life. I, I'm, a, I'm a very serious, pious Jew. We need to understand that the dietary laws of the Jews were considered sacred, sacred by all. And properly understood, they were, as already noted. MacArthur says Jesus' teaching may have been the most astounding the people had ever heard because few things were more sacred to the Jews of that day than their dietary laws. I mean, it affected them from morning till night, day in and day out, like I say. Even for the disciples, it was hard to grasp what Jesus was saying because of the dietary culture of the Jews being so intense. So Jesus said, verse 16, are you still without understanding? Are you also still without understanding. You know, it's kind of a mild rebuke, indicating that by this time, his disciples should have gotten this. It's understandable that the unbelieving multitudes didn't get it, but these believing disciples, they should have gotten it. Jesus had constantly been emphasizing to them that inward spiritual reality takes precedence over outward religious ritual, and yet they were kind of slow in putting it all together. Verse 17, do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? You know, Jesus got kind of blunt here, right? Kind of graphic. And very simple as well. Jesus is saying that the physical foods are amoral. In and of themselves, they're they're not spiritually defiling. They simply enter the body, pass through the digestive system, and are then eliminated. This process in and of itself is neither spiritual or defiling. It's just a natural process regarding physical realities. William McDonald says, Jesus explained that true defilement is moral, not physical. Edible foods are not intrinsically clean or unclean. In fact, no material thing is evil in itself. It is the abuse of a thing that is wrong. Verse 18, he continues... But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile a man. This is Christ's key premise. Stated in verse 11, and now stated again here in verse 18. Christ is saying it's not a matter of what goes into the mouth that defiles, which is what the Jewish culture had come to believe and and practice. But rather what comes out of the mouth from the heart. There's the issue. At core, it's a heart issue. Spiritual life related to worship is essentially a matter of the heart. The heart is the moral center of a person. It's a place of motives, desire, and the will. It's a place where choices are made. For illustration purposes, picture the heart as the well of a person. You let down a bucket into the well, fill up the bucket. And then as the water is brought up and delivered... Through the mouth of the well. If the bucket brings forth putrid, defiled water, it is because of what is brought up out of the heart of the well. 
It's ultimately what's in the heart that defiles a person. It's not what you're putting down in that physically. It's what spiritually is revealed coming out of the heart. The real issue of who and what we are is all about the condition of our heart. Defiled hearts are the problem. Defiled hearts are what render our worship unacceptable to God. It's all about the heart. I don't care how clean you are. I don't care how nice and kosher your food is. You've got a wicked heart. Not a good thing. Unacceptable worship. So, you know, it's not a New Testament concept, just a New Testament concept. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it spring the issues of life. Really, life is about the heart. I think on Judgment Day, it's going to be an evaluation of the heart. What really made us tick? What were our real motives? The Jews had made their religion all about outward externals. Missing the point that before God, it's really all about the inward condition of the heart. And when the heart is right, that is reflected in the life. It's reflected in our attitude towards God, and it's reflected in how we treat people. First and great commandment, love God. Second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. They go together. But what about the law? What about the law? Wasn't that all about outward conformity? Do you hear the question? What about the law? Wasn't that about out, all about outward conformity? No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Even though the Jews were commanded to keep the law... There was a more fundamental heart reality that was to be in place. Let me show you what I mean. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, God says, Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Circumcision of the heart figuratively described repentance that removes hardened rebellion against God in the heart and is now soft and sensitive and responding to him. It was then out of a circumcised heart that Israel was to love God with all their heart. We know these verses. Deuteronomy 6, 5 and 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today, the law Deuteronomy's a repetition of the law. These words today shall be in your heart. In your heart. The end of the book of Deuteronomy looks forward. The Lord God, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. It's a heart issue. And what's the result going to be? To love the Lord your God with all your Heart, with all your soul, that you may live. The most fundamental issue is always about the heart. That's true in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. When the heart is right with God, then the whole of life is aligned with it. God wants our heart. Really true faith before God is a heart issue before anything else. The Jews were to keep the law, not as a means of salvation, but as the fruit born out of a right heart, a heart of faith that wants to please God. 
And this was the point Paul was making in Romans chapter 2 when he says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, I mean, a true covenant person that belongs to God, who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So Jesus was not teaching something new, but rather bringing about correction that aligned with God's truth all along. Acceptable worship always begins in the heart. Spiritual defilement is always about the heart, not merely outward ordinances. Now, if the heart has no regard for God-ordained ordinances, that at root betrays a heart problem, a heart defilement problem. If the heart wants to obey God out of reverence, That is reflective of a circumcised heart that is right with God. Again, it's all about the heart. And that was Christ's point. Christ's point was this. What a person is determines what they say and do. Not the other way around. It's not doing religious things that makes you sanctified. Rather, it's being right in your heart towards God that then brings forth the good fruit of obedience. Being always comes first before doing. Internal is always before external. And this is what the Jews missed. They put the emphasis on doing instead of on being. They put the emphasis on the external instead of on the internal. Again, Thomas Constable says true religion must deal with people's basic nature, and not just with externals. The Pharisees and scribes had become so preoccupied with externals that they failed to deal with what is more basic and important, namely a real heart relationship with God. Verse 19, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. What we have here is an x-ray of the human heart. Again, the heart is the moral center of a person. And the uncircumcised, uncleansed, unregenerated heart is ugly. Very ugly. Now, people put on an external veneer, but down deep, it's ugly. We dress it up with religion, but down deep before God, that changes nothing. Matthew here gives us a catalog of seven ugly sins. While the cross-reference in Mark chapter 7, 21-22, mentions 13 sins. So these lists are not comprehensive, but rather representative. All of these sins lurk as potential inside all of us. Sin is potential before it is actual. But the flesh is capable of any of these sins in all of us. Even believers, we still have the ugly flesh, that old, edemic sin nature. Now, praise the Lord, we have a new nature, always wants to do what's right. We have the Holy Spirit that's always about holiness and nothing else and empowers us to do what is right. But we still feel the pull of that old sin nature that's ugly as ugly can be. Now, the Bible does deal with the fruit of sin, 
But even more fundamentally, it deals with the root of it as found in the heart. We are not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are inherently born sinners. You know, you don't have to teach a sinner to sin. He just kind of does it by nature. In other words, before anything else, we are sinners at heart before we are sinners in action. Yes, we sin in thought, word, and deed, but at core, it is first and fundamentally an issue of the heart. It all starts there. And Jesus said, here's the core fundamental problem. Your whole religion is upside down, Jews. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. Appropriately, the first thing mentioned here are evil thoughts. You know, thoughts are interesting. You know, I could be talking to you and thinking about something that you have no idea what I'm really thinking, right? And you can do that to me too, right? We don't really know what's going on in the heart and soul and thoughts of a person. But God does. Actions are born out of thoughts. The evil, the idea of evil thoughts is that of evil schemes. This is the formulating in the mind of doing wrong of one kind or another. Out of the heart come murders. Murder is the intentional killing of someone, the taking of their life. Not as a matter of self-defense or legitimately in war, etc. This is a matter of hatred. Premeditated, I want to kill this person. And the seed of murder is first hatched in the heart in the form of hatred. Actually, the Bible shows that hatred in the heart is the spiritual equivalent of murder. If I was to say, are you a murderer? You'd all say, not me. And say, oh yeah? Well, maybe we ought to study this verse. Whoever hates. Ever hated somebody? No, I'm just loving all the time. Have you ever lied? Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. To say, I wish that person was dead, reveals a murderer's heart. Even if you haven't physically killed the person. You got the seed of murder in your heart. Out of the heart proceed adulteries. Adultery begins in the heart. Jesus in Matthew 5, 28 said, Whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Adultery specifically deals with marital unfaithfulness. It's a violation of the covenant relationship formed in marriage. In marriage, we vow to be faithful to our marriage partner till death do us part. And marriage involves an intimate covenant relationship that is to be shared with no one else. It's sacred before God. It's a covenant relationship, which means we bring God into the equation. We are accountable to God for it. Lusting for someone who is not your marriage partner is adultery in thought form. Out of the heart proceed fornications. Adultery speaks specifically to sexual unfaithfulness in regard to the marriage relationship. While the word fornications is more broad and speaks to any kind of sexual perversion. Fornication is the Greek word pornea, from which we get our English word pornography. It refers to any and all types of illicit and immoral 
sexual behavior. Looking at porn is committing fornication in the heart. Again, all forms of immorality first begin in the heart. And we don't have to wonder what God thinks about this. We say, well, it's all grace now. We're in the New Testament. It is all grace, no doubt about that. But grace is a life-changing reality. Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. I would say probably, if we're honest, most of us have been guilty of adultery or fornication in one form or another on some level or another. If we haven't fallen into actual physical adultery, we've lusted after someone who is not our spouse. If we haven't actually fornicated in our hearts, we have entertained various kinds of sexual deviancy. It's flaunted before us all the time. And you can catch yourself, what was I just thinking? Who hasn't had that happen to him? You see, it's not just a matter of what you actually do, but a matter of the lust of the heart. All these things are born out of the heart. But praise God for grace and the cleansing that is found through the blood of Jesus and through faith in him. It's why we love him so. I don't know about you, but I've attached all my hopes to this one called Jesus and his grace and his cross. If it's a matter of me going on anything I've done, I'm going straight to hell. I can tell you that. I love Jesus. He's my savior. There's no holier than thou in the family of God but simply trophies of grace, the champion, our Savior, and what He has done for us. He's cleansed and changed our hearts. And I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. If you're right with Jesus, that's all that matters. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. This is what Jesus did for us. But how do we appropriate the cleansing of his blood to our defiled hearts? I think it's spiritual maturity. The older I get, the more sinful I realize I am. I mean, little things that I kind of used to overlook. I say, man, I think that's sin. Wow, it's like slow, slow to the game, but... (laughs) It's only grace. Only grace. Acts 15. So God who knows the heart, and he does. We don't even know the wickedness of our own hearts. We don't even know how wicked we are. We don't even begin to understand. But God knows. God who knows the heart, acknowledge him. Talking about the Gentiles. Acknowledge them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. I love that. How do you get a purified heart? By putting your faith in Jesus Christ. But what about when a believer falls into sin? Hey, I got saved. I have a purified heart. But now I've fallen into sin. That's a problem. Yeah. Let's understand it. 
Positionally, nothing changes. Positionally, you've been cleansed from your sin once and for all and forever, and nothing will ever change your position before God. We continue to be children of God, even when we mess up, and we all stumble in many ways, James says. The once-for-all blood payment for our sin continues to be all-sufficient, no matter what. But when we sin, when we mess up, our walk is affected. We lose our joy. We are out of fellowship. The Spirit is grieved. And that's a miserable place to be. And God doesn't allow His children just to stay there. Hebrews 12 says He disciplines all of His true children to build holiness into their lives. And if you're without discipline, you're illegitimate. When my children were born into my family, they were positioned there permanently. They are now forever my children. I will never disown them. No matter what they may do, they will always be my children forever. However, growing up, they're all gone now. I always said I was going to wait to write my book on, you know, children until they were gone. But anyway, they're all gone now. But growing up, they would sometimes do wrong things, which would affect our fellowship, their fellowship with me as their father. And that was never a good thing. I would warn them. I would discipline them. I would call them to get right. And so it is with God. Sometimes in our walk, we get our feet dirty. We don't need the bath of regeneration, but we do need to get right in our walk with God. And we do that through confession. That's what 1 John 1, 9 says. If we confess, he's talking to believers. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's talking about our walk here. In John 13, Jesus addressed the need for foot cleansing related to our walk versus the bath of cleansing related to salvation. John 13, 10. Jesus said to him, he was bathed, salvation. He was, has a salvation bath. He was bathed, needs only to wash his feet. But it's completely clean. You've had the bath, you're completely clean. And you are clean. But not all of you. There was one exception, Judas, who hadn't had the bath of salvation. But Schofield makes a great observation here. The underlying imagery is of an oriental returning from the public baths to his house. His feet would acquire defilement and require cleansing, but not his body. So the believer is cleansed as before the law from all sin once for all. But needs throughout his earthly life to bring his daily sins to the Father in confession so that he may abide in unbroken fellowship. There's the picture. The point Christ was making is that the place of spiritual defilement is always internal. It's always a hard problem. This is what defiles a person. Unbelievers are defiled by sin, and only the blood of Christ can cleanse us, cleanse our heart from sin. As believers, when we get our feet dirty in our walk, our position in Christ doesn't change. But we need to apply the cleansing of confession and get right in our walk. Thus, we keep our heart clean before God. 
Jesus said, out of the heart proceed thefts. I hate to admit it. I really do. But before I was saved, I was a thief. Pilfering this, that, and the other thing from places I worked for. You understood. They weren't paying me enough. I'm being crazy. Anyway, uh, that wasn't the problem. I used to even ponder how to commit the perfect crime without ever being found out. How crazy is this? I hate to admit it. And as I thought about committing the perfect crime, I deviously thought, in order to pull off the perfect crime, no one else can know about this. Because if anyone else knows about it, there's the potential of somebody squealing. It's like that old story about the thief who looked this way and that way, looked in every direction just to make sure no one was watching, and then went for it. But they made just one mistake. They forgot to look up. You see, God is always watching. He knows everything. Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of the joints of marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I mean, you talk about bringing conviction that cuts right through to the deepest part of a person. The word of God is able to do that. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God sees everything. Out of the heart proceed false witness. A false witness does not tell the truth. He gives untrue testimony. A false witness is a liar. And out of the heart proceed blasphemies. The word blasphemies refers to irreverent or abusive speech and can include the idea of slander. The word translated devil literally means slander. Blasphemy is injurious speech that seeks to tear down another. Verbal abuse. Back in Matthew 12, 34, Jesus said, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth tells on the heart. Want to know what's going on in a person? Want to know what's going on in their heart? Just listen to their speech. If blasphemies are coming forth, it reveals a defiled heart that is not right with God. So much for inherent goodness. Jesus paints a completely different picture of the heart. If you believe that people are basically good, then you might try harder to just be a good person, which leads to all kinds of religious legalism as practiced by the Jews. But the problem at core is a heart problem as brought out by Jesus. This is what defiles. The problem is not an external one, but an internal one. And the only solution to this is a saving faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That changes a person from the inside out. Because say, the Jews had exactly backwards, an outside-in perspective. Jesus says, oh no, you got it backwards. It's inside out. Jesus focused on the heart. What a person is in the core of their being, in their heart, invariably comes out in their life in terms of what they say, what they do, and what they value. The first pastor of this church was a, name, a man by the name of Harold Sanders. Some of you knew Harold. Back in the day, he was uh, the dean of men at Grace College of the Bible, where I went to school. And whenever he would get us together, almost invariably, he would share Proverbs 23, 7. And he always quoted in the old King James, so here it is. As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. He'd say, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus described his true followers 
as those who are pure in heart. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Being a true believer in Christ results in a heart transformation. Yes, we know the struggle, but we're also born again. And if anyone is a new creation in Christ, if anyone is born again, it's a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Yes, we still struggle with the flesh. But at the same time, we've experienced a heart transformation that really does fundamentally change us. Verse 20. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. What defiles a person are the moral issues of the heart, not eating with unwashed hands. The external does not defile a person morally. Rather, moral defilement is entirely an internal matter of the heart. The world cries, we need more education. We need cultural change. We need social reform. We need revolution. But none of these things are the answer because they don't deal with the fundamental problem of the defiled human heart. We need a new heart. And where do we get it? Well, even in the Old Testament, in reference to a new covenant, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone, that hard heart, out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, soft The story is told of a man who was a perfectionist. There was a clock at the church he attended that would never keep the right time, such as that one we have on the clock right there that's way ahead of schedule. But uh, he was frustrated that this clock would never keep the right time. It was eventually too fast or too slow. So he put a placard on the wall above it with the words written, Don't blame my hands, the trouble lies deeper. And so it is with people. When their hands do wrong or their lips or their feet, the trouble lies deeper still. The trouble lies so deep, deep in the heart, so deep that only God's work in the heart can change. Well, have you been to Jesus for the changing power? It's all about Jesus. This is a miracle. This is supernatural territory. We can't change our hearts. Jesus has come to me. Come to me. He'll change you from the inside out, little by little. We begin as babes. We mature. We grow. We mess up. You know, babies mess. They may mess us. (laughs) But he continues to work. Have you been to Jesus for the changing power? That's what it's all about. It's an inside reality, not just outside in. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.